Which parts of your life does the gospel most impact? We believe that when a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, they are given a new heart. They're given the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We believe that they are forgiven of trespasses, that they are redeemed by the blood of Christ, that his grace is poured out on them in all wisdom and insight, and and that he blesses them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not necessarily in that order. We believe that when a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, they have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So let me ask you again. Which parts of your life does the gospel most impact? Is it your Sunday morning schedule? Is it the television shows that you watch or the music that you listen to? Is it the way that you dress or does it go deeper than that? Does the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners change the way that we read the Bible? Instead of an old book full of rules and interesting stories of dead people gone by and some sort of puritanical morality, do we now read the Bible as the holy word of God? As Peter says in the opening of his second letter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Does the gospel most affect your sinful desires? Does it drive us to be holy as he is holy? Does the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, does this compel us toward godliness? Does the gospel create in you a desire to to, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love? As Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So which parts of your life does the gospel most impact? Open your Bibles, if you would, if you haven't already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at specifically one of those areas where it should be continuing to change you. I'm going to read... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the husband does not have authority over uh, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were uh, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Or how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, having read that, we need to stop and pray. Father, this is your word. I pray that you would um, give us the ears to hear, help us to understand. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would be working in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, it is important as we pick up our study of uh, this letter here that we remember the context to which Paul is writing especially the immediately preceding section that we looked at last week in which Paul addressed the, the rampant sexual immorality of the Corinthian culture, of the city of Corinth. So to, to quote myself from last week, I said this, Corinth was a city given over to the worship of sex. A thousand priestesses from that temple of Aphrodite that stood on the rocky hill behind the ancient city would come down into the streets at night to ply their trade. Promiscuity, obviously, was accepted and even highly regarded in that culture. And it's pretty much the same today across these United States. And then I also said this last week. But the point of this passage is to correct those of us who are Christians and yet thinking and maybe even acting like the world. Remember, as a Christian, you are united to Christ, yet a prostitute represents idolatry. It represents forces opposed to God. And in engaging in this act, the Christian aligns himself against God. So it is important to remember that Paul has told them to run from this sin which was so perfectly acceptable to the culture, to the people of Corinth. After all, as we might hear these days, they're going to do it anyway, they might as well be safe. We've heard that over and over and over again today to downplay the seriousness of immorality. 
So beginning here, though, in chapter 7, Paul addresses issues that the Corinthian Christians have written to him about. Now, sometimes we can forget that this was a church. This was an actual church filled with actual Christians and everything, just like us. And it's tempting to write some of this off as, as just not applicable to us. But the danger that we face is is looking at verses like this and saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Instead, we must face passages like this with an attitude that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because the decisions that we make today and the humility with which we approach these topics and these passages of Scripture, they not only shape our lives, but also the lives of our children and generations to come, even of this very church. So whenever I hear someone say something like, oh, I don't need to be there for that particular teaching or that particular sermon, I don't struggle with that sin, I always think to myself, you probably will. And if you don't, your children probably will. And so from here, chapter 7, verse 1, through really the first verse of chapter 11, Paul addresses issues that are related to to lifestyle. Everything from marriage to food to Christian liberty. And he does so as a response to their questions. In fact, Paul will use this phrase that he opens this chapter with when he says, now concerning. He's going to use that now concerning three times. He uses it here in matters related to marriage and celibacy. He uses it again in chapter 8, verse 1, when he addresses the issue of of food that's been offered to idols. And then later, in the midst of instructions regarding, really, regarding worship in chapter 12, verse 1, where for three chapters he teaches about spiritual gifts before he circles back to the gospel in chapter 15. As I said, there is a, well, there's a clear transition here between chapters 6 and 7. There's also an obvious connection to the moral issues that he wrote about in chapter 6. See, in the ancient Greek world, women, wives in particular, were valued for their homemaking and their childbearing work and little else. And as a result, it was seen as acceptable for Greek men to visit prostitutes or worse. And so before Paul answers this question, He needed to take away their excuse. That's what we talked about last week. But beginning here, chapter 7, verse 1, his tone is is slightly different. See, up until now, he's been rebuking them, sometimes even sharply, but now he's much more subtle and even gentle about these things. Some of the things that they have asked him, they, they do raise some serious issues. Paul is also concerned to demonstrate that all Christians have a responsibility to follow the life for which the Lord has gifted them and to ensure that they do not fall into temptation. Remember, some at the church were spiritually arrogant and they were prideful. 
And apparently they've written to Paul suggesting that it is more spiritual for Christians to remain abstinent or celibate in marriage. And Paul begins by addressing this head on as he brings up the topic of the marriage bed. Let me read again verses 1 through 5. This is about the marriage bed. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Near the end of the book of Hebrews, um, there's a series of rapid-fire commands, uh, imperatives, uh, things to do. It almost seemed that, if you read through that kind of quickly, they almost seem to have nothing to do with each other, yet they really flow out of a life that has been given to Christ. And in the midst of those rapid-fire commands is Hebrews 13, verse 4, which says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, on the face of it, that seems like a, a very simple statement, doesn't it? It is. But we all know that sometimes, sometimes simple commands of Scripture are not that easy to put into practice, particularly when we're surrounded by a celebration of the opposite. For example, in Hebrews 13, the very next verse says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's very simple and straightforward. And yet it's pretty hard to actually abide by, is it not? How hard is that command to keep when we are surrounded not only by advertisements and and marketing that that feed our sense of entitlement and, and our desire, but we're also surrounded by thoughts, especially this time of year, of, of Christmas bonuses, of $5,000 sign-on bonuses. It's such a simple statement, though. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. But when people are involved, sin will enter into the mix. And so Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 7, speaks very clearly in these verses. Like he did in verses 12 and 13 of the previous chapter, he quotes their statement in verse 1. And yet he doesn't just simply disagree with it. After all, there there are instances where celibacy is preferable. But instead of just simply disagreeing with this statement, he offers such a strong list of, of kind of qualifiers that the statement kind of becomes meaningless. Look at verse 1 again. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here it is, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Why would they make such a blanket statement like this? Well, the key to their thinking is found in the word good. In other words, they were saying that it is morally superior to be celibate whether you're married or not. But Paul's argument 
is that the moral or spiritual good is only truly seen in living the life that God has intended or as God has granted it. This is the crux of his whole argument throughout this passage. And yet he begins by acknowledging, really, the pressures that we face. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, we have to make an aside here, and this is very important, because these verses have sometimes been used very poorly over the years. Sometimes by nature of this topic, these verses have been used to manipulate for selfish purposes. They've been used in the same way that Ephesians chapter 5 is sometimes used to demand submission. And so, gentlemen in particular, if you read these verses with selfish motivations, you're reading them wrong. Do you understand that? If you're reading these verses with selfish motivations, you're reading them wrong. These verses do not favor one spouse over another. They simply state a fact. So what is this about? Well, in chapter 6, verse 18, just a few verses earlier, Paul had urged us to flee porneia, flee sexual immorality, flee, King James, fornication. And here he is saying that within marriage, there is a specific way to do this. We are called not to deny our physical desires, but rather to glorify God in your body, he says. Marriage is the means through which men and women glorify God in this way. Again, from the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says that in chapter 1. He says it again in chapter 9 to, to Noah. And then in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, he establishes marriage as this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we can paraphrase Paul's response this way. We could say this, You have said it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. On the contrary, it is because of the immorality that I've been writing about that a man must have his own wife and a wife her own husband. In other words, the way to avoid immorality is to remain within the boundaries that God has established, and that is within the marriage relationship between one man and one woman, husband and wife. Now, there are ramifications for this in verses 3 and 4, but the first thing that we must clearly see is that husbands and wives are equals in this area. This prevents one spouse from forcing the other to do something that they find offensive. Obviously, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail here, but suffice it to say this. Husbands and wives belong to each other, and they must not treat the other with selfishness or in any kind of cruel way, but are to love and cherish and enjoy each other. Husbands, you belong to your wife. 
not to yourself. And I should say this, and I think you'll know what I mean, whether real or virtual. Wives, same argument. You belong to your husbands and not to yourselves. And I'll put it this way, whether real or emotional. And I know I'm stereotyping there a bit. But let's move on because Paul actually makes a concession in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession uh, and not a command, I say this. This is pretty clear. He says, don't deprive one another except by mutual agreement. But again, this is not for manipulation. Those possible times of abstinence that he's talking about, they should be brief, and in order to protect one another, protect one another against immorality, which is a direct result of lack of self-control. It's a direct result of a lack of self-control. The point is this, and then we can move on. The normal condition of men and women is a monogamous and active marriage. And while there are exceptions, health conditions maybe, for example, there are exceptions. This is to be the normal human pattern, and this is rooted in the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And We must also let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. But what about other exceptions? Well, Paul addresses marriage and celibacy for the unmarried and widows, beginning in verse 7, where he actually gives us a, a hint at his own personal life. So verses 7 to 9 say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. <clears throat> now, at the time of this writing, Paul's single. Although some have suggested, and I think it's, I think it's actually fairly likely, that he was, he was probably widowed. Uh, because as a Pharisee of Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, or even just simply as a Jewish man, he almost certainly married at some point before his conversion to Christianity. But there's a bit of conjecture in there, so don't hold me to that. But regardless of that, he clearly has the gift of celibacy at this time. And he wished that others did as well. And this statement there in verse 7 is, is probably a reference to the fact that the church was being told... That, that celibacy was for all. And yet there were some who found themselves, let's say, without the gift. And instead they were burning with passion and even falling into temptation. But even as I said earlier that, that marriage is to be the normal human pattern, Paul acknowledges that we are to live as God has gifted. So let's explore this just a little bit. Paul says here that singleness, whether it's because of never having married or widowhood, <clears throat> he says that singleness can be good. He's not commanding it. 
He's not saying that singleness is better than being married. He's saying that singleness can be morally, a morally good state of existence, even considered a gift from God. He's going to pick up this thread a little bit later, that singleness can even be, he will go on to say, can even be advantageous for the kingdom of God. But here, he's simply affirming the goodness of singleness. As in, don't misunderstand what the Bible says about marriage to come to the conclusion that singleness is bad or that something is wrong or disordered if a person remains single. But look at verse 9 again. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Singleness according to the boundaries God has put into place, equals celibacy. Singleness equals celibacy, according to the boundaries that God has put into place. And if you cannot exercise self-control, then get married. That's what he says. So up until this point, Paul has addressed the marriage bread, He has instructed them concerning marriage and celibacy for unmarried or widows. And now he has to address some issues regarding regarding marriage and divorce for married Christians. Marriage and divorce for married Christians. I want to go through this part in small bites. Look at verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Remember, this is in the context of what they had written to him back in verse 1. He's still referring back to verse 1, back to what they had said to him. And so this idea of abstinence is a problem for some of the married couples of the church in Corinth. In fact, apparently for some of those who uh, had become Christians after they were already married, they were tempted to leave their spouses when they discovered that, that under normal circumstances, celibacy within a marriage is not an option. Now, now I need to address this first parenthetical statement here uh, where he says, not I but the Lord, because he's going to reverse this in verse 12, and he will say, to the, to the rest I, I say, I, not the Lord. And this, that, those two parenthetical statements have kind of caused a bunch of confusion over the years, and there's a tendency to downplay the rest of what Paul says because it's not from the Lord, apparently. But the solution to understanding this is actually really simple. See, some have interpreted this to mean that that somehow Paul is writing, beginning in verse 12, uh, that part he's writing on his own, that he's not carried along by the Holy Spirit at that point. And so they're going to say, after verse 12, that that part is not inspired scripture, but rather it is just uh, uh, the advice of a man who clearly didn't like women. But the Lord that he was referring to there is is Jesus specifically. And so by the time Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, it's likely that none of the Gospels have even been written yet. Most of them were written later. Certainly they didn't have copies of them. And so all of the stories of Christ, all of his teaching had been passed on uh, orally 
You've been telling, they've been hearing about him from people like Paul, from people who had lived with Christ. And so he's telling them, look, I heard Jesus talk about this. Or we know that he didn't hear it, but we know that Jesus talked about this. And so the Lord that he is referring to is specifically Jesus. And so in verse 10, he is referring to some teaching that Jesus did while he was ministering before his death and resurrection. But in verse 12, he's simply saying this, look, Jesus actually didn't say anything about this, but I have the authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, so here's the instruction. This is still spirit-inspired, it is still God-breathed scripture, and so it is still authoritative for us. And so in verses 10 and 11, Paul passes along a command of Jesus, and if you're curious, he's referring to Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12, where Jesus teaches on these things. But it's also important to remember that Paul is not simply writing a, in all of this, Paul is not simply writing a a systematic theological marriage manual here. He's simply answering a specific question. Namely, to put it in my own words, wouldn't it be better to remain celibate or even divorce rather than participate in the lusts of the flesh? Sexual sin was so rampant in the city that when those became saved, there were people who just were so detested by it. They didn't want anything to do with it even in their own marriages. They didn't want anything to do with it. Wouldn't it just be better if we just remained celibate? Many in the church were also falling under the spell of the Gnostics who believe that the body and its passions are always evil. And so what Paul is addressing in verses 10 and 11 is this. This sexual immorality that was so rampant in their culture. There are husbands and wives who had converted to Christianity and would prefer to separate or even divorce rather than to participate in normal marital relations. And Paul just simply says no. And the reason is that throughout this passage, Paul repeats himself. Have you noticed that? Paul is repeating himself through this. He, he addresses the wife and then the husband, saying virtually the same thing to both of them. The reason for that is that there were likely some married couples where one wanted to remain abstinent and the other did not. And Paul's answer is that that's not God's design for marriage. And as we walk through this, beginning in verse 12, he addresses something that Jesus did not specifically address. Let me go back to verse 11. There's another parenthetical statement there. Verse 11 says, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Why would he put this statement in there? We actually aren't perfectly sure. But I think that we can conclude, because we know the human nature, that there are some unbelieving men... The wife becomes a believer, and he's still going to the temple. And he's still visiting with the temple prostitutes, just as before they were married. And she wants nothing to do with that. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Let's move on to verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, again, these verses are pretty straightforward. And the idea is that one of them has become a believer after already being married, and so they ought to stay married. But the context is that this is a, again, I just need to stress this, this is a monogamous relationship. What he's implying there in verses 12 and 13, in consenting to live with, he's implying that he's going to remain, they are going to remain faithful to each other. For example, he is consenting to not go to the temple anymore to visit prostitutes. That's the context of this entire passage. And remember, he is still responding to to their statement in verse 1. We have to be very careful not to lift passages like this out of context because there are all kinds of issues that come up. There are all kinds of issues that come up in marriage counseling. What about this? What about that? Where the whole of Scripture, not just two verses, but the whole of Scripture need to be consulted and carefully worked through before we just jump to to proof text conclusions. I once counseled somebody who used to bang the drum over and over again, God hates divorce. That's true. God hates divorce. But at the same time, he was continuing to egregiously sin against his family. God hates divorce. But that's not the only counsel of Scripture. But let's move on. This is about a monogamous marriage relationship. This is what verse 14 is getting at. This is a very difficult verse if we just look at it um, by itself. Let me read verse 14 again. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife... An unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. The first thing that we have to understand as we read about Paul using this phrase, is made holy, is that it cannot mean saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by marriage or birth. Now, there are several different interpretations of this verse, and honestly, not much agreement in all the commentaries that I looked through. But I'll say it again, we have to remember the context of what he's writing here. Paul, we have to remember the questions that Paul is addressing, and they have to do with immorality, specifically visiting prostitutes, chapter 6, verse 16. In God's eyes, marriage is a holy union. This is what this is talking about. In God's eyes, marriage is a holy union. We even sometimes call it holy matrimony. And so in this case, he's using the word holy to mean pure. If if you're both faithful to one another, if you're both husband and wife in a marriage relationship, if you're both faithful to one another, your marriage bed will remain pure even if you're married to an unbeliever. The same goes for children that are produced by this union versus, for example, those that are produced by the result of immorality. Notice the opposite of holy here is unclean. We used to use the word illegitimate in speaking of children. This line of thinking directs, um, connects directly to verse 16, which says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
The idea is this. Your faithfulness in the midst of a world that continues to proclaim that porneia is not a big deal. Your faithfulness may very well lead to the salvation of your husband or your wife. Now, we understand that in the larger context of Scripture, even just of Paul's epistles, sexual faithfulness is not the only requirement to being a godly husband or wife, but that's what Paul is addressing here. And then jump back up to verse 15 where it says this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. There may be times where that unbelieving spouse wants to stay in that old life, wants nothing to do with this new life in Christ, wants nothing to do with this new purity, this new schedule, whatever it is. They want out of the marriage. And so God, who really does hate divorce, yet in his grace makes allowance because marriage is not slavery. Marriage is not slavery. The gospel is not designed to break up families or to separate husbands and wives. Rather, marriage is designed to reflect Christ's unending love for his own bride, the church. We've been called to peace. Our marriages should be, should be relationships that reflect Christ and his church should be places of peace. I'll finish with Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church of his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages should reflect Christ and the church. Our love for one another within a marriage relationship should reflect Christ and the church. Whether you're married or not, whether you fall under some other category, we are to let marriage be held in honor 
among all. Pray with me. Father, some of these things can be difficult to talk about. It can be difficult to hear. We know that everybody in this room has a different testimony of how sin has impacted them. Whether it is sin that they've done or sin that we've done or sin that's been done to us. There are hurts. There's pain. And yet, Father, your grace is more than that. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your grace redeems us. And so, Lord, that we would read through this and come to the conclusion, yes, marriage must be held in honor among all. That there are some in here who have been gifted with singleness and celibacy, maybe even at first without their will or against their will. And yet you have seen fit. So we praise you for that. Father, we have been gifted with marriage and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray as we come to the table, Lord, to proclaim Jesus' death, I pray that we would remember that that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That for as many as received him, that you have given us the right to be called children of God. For those who have believed and called upon the name of Christ. So Lord, we come to the table to proclaim that your grace and your mercy is enough to cleanse us from all of our sin and unrighteousness. We come to the table to proclaim that Christ has died for our sins, the just for the unjust, that we might live to him. We come to the table to proclaim victory through Jesus Christ over sin and death. Father, be glorified today. We pray this in his name. Amen.